Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. Once, maybe twice a generation, there comes a show with the power to transform. Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM seeks to do just that. Financial news you need by the voices you trust. So we cordially invite you to join us on this journey. I'm your host, George Akala, joined alongside Patrick Scott. Come on, George. We don't overhype this. <laughs> we cannot overhype this episode because we're going to be talking about what it means to be investors on the broadest of scales and what a company actually is. How do we make money off of that? For our more advanced listeners, this might be a little basic, shall I say, but I think even researching this, both Patrick and I, we found a lot of insights that I think you forget about when we're talking about these complex market events that ultimately we're buying companies and what we're doing as investors, contrary to a lot of popular belief, can actually help people in a very fundamental way. Yeah, it's it's very refreshing going back and looking at how investing works at the most fundamental levels possible. And as a quick reminder, the show is for entertainment purposes only as we talk about investing today. Make sure to contact a trusted financial representative before making any decision. To start off, let's move back in time as Patrick takes us to the origin of investing. What year would have that been? How old would have you been? And what place in history do we occupy? They're big questions, but you're a man with big answers. Let's hear it. Uh, sorry to disappoint, but I have answers for exactly zero of those questions. We're, we're going to take a look at just the general history of investing, see if we can sort of almost pinpoint where it started, and then uh, what that teaches us about what investing is. The Oxford Dictionary says that to invest is to use money or capital to purchase an asset in the expectation of earning income or profit over time. Let's dive into this. As in the case with most things, we can find out its purpose when we look back at the time that it was first used. Let's go back to the Bible to see what we can find. The Bible talks about investing, and it was written 2,000 years ago. Pretty far back. We'll see if we can go further back than that. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells his parable of the talents, the story of men who were given money to steward, and two of them went and, quote, traded with them and doubled what they had. So that's investing. The third buried his money to keep it safe. Of course, the master turns angry at the third man, and he says, you should have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have at least gotten a little bit of interest. And I think this marks a fundamental shift from what was traditionally thought in the Jewish tradition of earning interest being bad because you earn money for money that you you didn't do anything with. But obviously in Matthew 25, that is not what we see. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because it depends on your definition of usury. I think usury is more when you have just exorbitantly high interest rates, like you're just extorting cash out of people, taking advantage of difficult situations. And so I think that's what most people are mad about, not just basic interest rates. So what do we gather from this story? I think it's interesting to see just how financial markets still work the same way 2,000 years later. 
We still invest our money, sometimes doubling what we invested, and we still put it to the bank and receive interest. These financial principles have stayed the same for millennia, but the Bible doesn't talk about the establishment of investing, so let's go back another 2,000 years before Jesus and see if we can find any answers there. One of the earliest mentions of investing-related activity is in the Code of Hammurabi, which was written almost 4,000 years ago. It established a method for pledging collateral on investment. It established punishments for anyone who broke their obligations as creditors or debtors. Interestingly, the code doesn't say what investing was. That's also really fascinating that even 4,000 years ago, they understood for investment to work, property rights are important. And you have to have trust that someone is able to pay that back in the future. Definitely. What do we conclude from this? Neither the Bible nor the Code of Hammurabi talks about the establishment of investing. And of course, there are other resources, but these are both pretty far-reaching, I might say. And to me, this indicates that investing as a principle is inherent to humans. I don't think some caveman discovered investing. I think investing, in single quotation marks, uh, has always been the human method for acquiring wealth. That's nice, but you know, we still have to figure out what investing is. Investing is like buying any other product, except for the fact that when we buy most things, they depreciate over time. So they decrease in value. Eventually, we're going to use them until they wear out, and then they'll be worth nothing. With investing, we expect the product, in most cases, securities are what we're dealing with, like stocks. We expect those to go up in value over time. So that's the big difference, appreciating versus depreciating. There's also different arguments on what investing is as far as people will argue about is a house an investment. A lot of people say it would be, but it's on a different level than stocks or bonds because you're not receiving regular cash flows. So even among this overarching definition, there is some nuance. And I kind of thought of an analogy here, George, and correct me if I'm wrong with this. I think of investing as a team building exercise where you and your teammate have to get up over a wall that is too high for both of you to reach and you both have to get over it. The investor is going to give his friend the business a lift. So he's going to push him over the wall and then the business, now successful after the initial investment, will pull the investor up with him. So now, because the investor was able to secure profits for the business and get him up the wall, the business is able to share those profits back with the investor who made it possible. That's probably the best analogy you've made just because I think we like to think of investing as a zero-sum game, whereas if I make money, you lose money type of thing. But I think that's a, a great thing that both people can benefit and be in a better position than they would have been before the partnership. Oh, well, thank you. But I set a low bar with the analogies. Remember last week, uh, what was it, the, the basketball one? <laughs> All right, well, we'll move on. Why is investing good? It's good for what's being invested in, for example. So we think about Shark Tank. Those entrepreneurs are asking for the sharks to invest in their companies. They're coming to the sharks. The sharks aren't coming to them. Although the name sharks does sound kind of predatory, but we're going to move past that for now. George, like you said, this is not a win-lose trade-off situation where the investors lose money at the expense of the one who is invested. And capital investment, like loans, provides cash for companies to do what they do. Without that initial investment or loan, many businesses are not going to be existing as they do today. People like to get mad at investors, but I think you often forget the reason that you have a home loan is because an investor is making money off of you paying back your loan. You're not mad about that right now. You're just happy that you're able to own a home. Maybe you're a little more disappointed if you didn't get in before the the rate hikes, but that's another podcast. Mm. Let's see who else investing is good for. It's good for the investor. Obviously, we wouldn't be investing if it wasn't good for us in some way. And as previously stated, when the company invested and grows and makes profits, the investor is going to take a piece of those earnings since they 
own a portion of that company, if we're talking about stocks at least. And real quick, something to keep in mind with this oversimplified explanation of investing. It doesn't always apply when individual investors like you and me buy shares in a public company. After a company goes public with its initial public offering, or IPO, an institutional investor like J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs is going to buy, or we call it underwriting, those shares before selling them to investors. After the company sells the shares to an institutional investor, the institutional investor will sell it to average Joes like you and me, George, and then from there on, it's just you and me trading the shares between each other in the market. And to be fair, that neglects a little though. By me and you trading back and forth, if there's more demand than supply or more people buying than selling, that drives the share price up, which gives the companies a lot more flexibility if they're trying to acquire debt or if they want to issue new shares. It helps them in the long run, albeit maybe in a smaller way than Shark Tank would. However, though public investing doesn't exactly fit this model with the oversimplified idea of investing that we've been talking about, the private equity side of things does a little bit more. With private equity, that's when you're buying shares of a company from the company that is not publicly traded, that's not on the New York Stock Exchange. And so that's what Shark Tank is. Those sharks are in the business of private equity. They're investing in small companies, you know, startups that are not on any stock exchange. They haven't gone public. There's no IPO. Kind of as a more specific subset of that would be probably venture capital or in some cases angel investing. So it's good for the investor because investing puts the company and the investor on the same team. Both the investor and the company have incentives to seek the other's benefit. Finally, it's good for society. Without investing, many businesses would not exist today, and uh, we consumers would not be benefiting from their goods and services. Economies thrive on businesses, thrive on money moving through the markets, so investing increases the scale at which that happens. The next time you think of an investor as just a selfish day trader hidden in mom's basement, you know, surrounded by computer screens, you may want to reconsider. Well, I appreciate you bringing that idea for us, Patrick, today. As we continue on with our episode talking about investing on Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I intend to do something that seems very fundamental, but try to explain what makes a stock value go up, what makes a company more valuable, that sort of thing. Because I think even a lot of investors buy a company because it has a cool logo or someone on TV told them to buy it, and they don't actually understand the mechanics of what's going on. So I'm going to try to do that through the example of, wait for it, a snowblower. Fair enough. To start off, let's think about this illustration. If I have to shovel my driveway every time it snows and it takes me two hours, I might be in the market for a snowblower, as one is. If there is little demand for snowblowers, I might be able to buy one that pays for itself and we're going to use time saved because time is money. And it can pay for itself in three snowstorms. If there is high demand for a particular snowblower, maybe that number is 10 snowstorms before it can pay for itself. I could also choose to spend hours searching used listings to buy a really cheap snowblower that pays for itself in two. But that might only last me five snowstorms. I could also buy a really good snowblower that would need to last me 25 snowstorms to pay for itself. You get the picture. In all these cases, there's a fair amount of uncertainty, namely, will it last for a long time? And without some research, it's impossible to tell which deal is better than the other. Put another way, a great investor that I listened to said, if you ask me what's a better car, a Ferrari or a Ford, I'm going to tell you it's a Ferrari. But if I can buy that Ford 
for a thousand dollars or I have to pay ten million dollars for a Ferrari. I might go with the Ford. That's a, that's a much better deal. Anyone can tell you that the Ferrari is better, but finding the better deal is often the hard thing. Also, better is subjective. Depends yeah. on your what you're going to use be using a car for. I'm not sure if that fits into your analogy, but not super well. I mean, even as investors, it can depend on timeline. Because if I want to retire in five years, that's going to be a different type of company that I invest in versus if I'm trying to retire in 40. All this is to say that a snowblower, like a company, creates value. Like I said, time is money. You could easily substitute the names of companies with the snowblower example. Apple might be the top of the line new model, whereas a coal mining company might be the well-worn snowblower that we talked about. People often ask me, how do I actually make money in the stock market? You talked about a day trader sitting behind a computer, and it can feel like exactly that. All the numbers are just on a computer, on a digital screen. How do we actually make sense of it? And I think on a day-to-day basis, Benjamin Graham brings this concept up of Mr. Market. And Mr. Market adjusts the price on any given day based on if he's really depressed or really excited about the outlook. But you can't really see how stock price relates to company performance until you zoom out over multi-year periods. So what you're saying here is that the stock price doesn't always accurately tell you how the company is doing. Usually it's pretty close, but sometimes in the short run, if we're going to continue with our example, a snowblower is generally going to be pretty well priced, but after a major snowstorm, people might panic and try to buy a bunch of them driving the price up. Or if it's in the summer, they might be a lot cheaper. As in they would drive the price artificially too high? I don't think artificially is the right word. It's an emotion-driven buy versus what we would think of as maybe rational. How do you actually make money in the stock market? There's kind of two ways besides like the day-to-day emotions of the market. One of them is called multiple expansion, and one of them is wealth creation. Let's talk about multiple expansion. So it's easy enough. It would be when you're paying more for the earnings of a stock. Just imagine building a robotic snowblower to start a business for $500. The next day, a meteorologist finds data that the next five years are going to be twice as snowy in Michigan. Your new price for your proprietary robotic snowblower is now $1,000. Nothing has changed about your company as a whole. It's the same snowblower. You have the same amount of assets. It's just that people are willing to pay more because they think that asset is going to be more valuable in the future. And this seems like a super silly example, but just think of defense contractors like Northrop Grumman after the war in Ukraine broke out. Nothing fundamentally changed about that company and the assets that they owned, but the thought of being at war in the future drove their stock price up. We've established multiple expansion. Uh, I think supply and demand is a relatively easy concept, but how do you make money if you invest in a company that is also making money? but not a lot of people want to own it. It would be akin to building that same robotic snowblower for about $500. Even though that forecast still came out, his prediction was still there, for some reason, the price of your robotic snowblower in business hasn't gone up. However, each year you make $200 by sending your robotic snowblower across the street to clean your neighbor's driveway. For the, for the purpose of this example, we're going to say that you don't require any work to put into this or charging or anything like that. You own a good asset, but no one values that. But you're okay with that because after each year, you can either pay a dividend to yourself, that would be pocketing the $200 that you earn each year. Because you're the owner. Because you're the owner of that company. Or you can save up to build another robotic snowblower and farther grow your business. So then you have a bigger business that's earning more income. And those are the options that companies have. 
they can either pay a dividend to us, the owners, but a lot of times they'll reinvest into their company um, to try to grow it bigger so they have more income in the future. And you'll see a lot of companies actually benefit from both multiple expansion and the overall business growing. Your snowblower business is profitable because you earn income every year, but also because you'll start gaining the attention of other investors who will drive up the price until maybe it makes sense for you to sell your company at $2,000. And I realize I have probably mangled this analogy and confused some people. It's not the perfect analogy, but I think it's a good representation of what stocks actually are. And like I said, with my example, you could have substituted a lot of different companies in there, and I think the point still stands. In conclusion, there's many different ways to attempt to profit in the stock market, but at its simplest form, you can think of it like buying an asset. It's not always clear what the best deal is without researching, and that's why we have to be careful when we do that. And the topic we'll wrap up with today is something that we talked about for our first episode of the fall semester, and the results are in for Apple and their Vision Pro. Initial thoughts, Patrick? Well, I didn't buy them, that's for sure. <laughs> if you remember from that episode a while back, I uh, told you, as I'm sure that you have all heard online, on Facebook or Instagram or where, wherever, that these were priced at $3,500, which is, for me, pretty expensive for an iPhone right in your eyeballs. Yeah, and once they released them, I didn't totally keep up with it, but to my knowledge, not a huge hit. Yeah, people have been fascinated with them but it seems more of a concept than an actual thing that'll catch on right now if you look at apple's stock price it didn't really move too much following the release of the vision pro which likely means that the release kind of went according to plan as expected and investors didn't expect early on that the vision pro would make apple a lot of money i think it's under a billion dollars they're expected to make on the product launch which for a multi-trillion dollar company is just a drop in the bucket. Well, we have to remember, you said that there wasn't a significant price change. And we imagine that this was priced in to the stock price, right? The efficient market hypothesis, we've mentioned this several times on many different episodes, is when stockholders and investors have as much information as they do, they're going to consider that when buying stocks. And so the stock price is going to reflect that information that they know. They knew this was coming out for a while, and so the stock price relatively reflected that. And even if investors didn't react, though, I think from a more broad, maybe social standpoint, people are finally entertaining the idea of what it would be like to live in a completely virtual world. And if there's been one positive, in my opinion, I don't think people are fully buying into this virtual world thing, especially that the Vision Pros were kind of marketed that you would still be somewhat engaged with your surroundings. And the videos that I've seen and the reviewers that I've listened to have definitely made that seem like it's not the case when you're just staring at someone wearing black ski goggles, essentially. Yeah, it does seem really dystopian, doesn't it? Strong Ready Player One vibes. <laughs> Confession, I've neither read the book nor watched the movie, but I hear that's what it's about, the Apple Vision Pros. But yeah, I think the reason why it didn't do so well is just because Sure, it's a high-quality product, and Apple obviously had to invest a ton of cash into this thing to make it happen, and it's still incredibly impressive, a real work of art. But the thing is, it just doesn't add a whole lot of value to the consumers on top of what they already have with their other Apple devices like iPhones. A little bit of a victim of their own success in this case. Finally, in a story that just recently broke, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, announced his efforts and intentions to raise 7 trillion with a T 
dollars to quicken the adoption of AI. As you might know, OpenAI is the AI research and development responsible for developing ChatGPT. It's a nonprofit organization, but not a typical one, as its market value is estimated to be around $80 billion. And though AI is progressing rapidly, the amount of demand isn't enough for the supply. You also have to consider that AI capacity is needed to train more AI in the future to make AI smarter. And right now, all that power is going to solving people's queries, whether that's on ChatGPT or Microsoft Azure or similar platforms. And $7 trillion seems like a pretty aggressive goal, but there's reason to believe that the U.S. is going to open up its pocketbooks because Altman, he's been on this little fundraising campaign trying to secure funding, and he's talked to the United Arab Emirates, who the U.S. believes could potentially have ties with China. But if they're willing to fund the AI development... The only way to stop them is probably for the U.S. to pay more. Again, very interesting development to watch as we go forward. And as always, we'll keep you educated and entertained and informed if anything new breaks. But I, th I think kind of going off of Patrick's big story last week about the U.S. wanting to be a leader in AI, I'd have to imagine that they'd want to pony up for this project. Anyways, that's about all the time we have for today. We really want to thank you for tuning into the show. And if you've missed any of our past shows, of which there have been many, you can find those all on Twitter at Wall Street Pod. Thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.